be jumping into 1 Corinthians, like we have the last few weeks. And uh, the title of this talk is Eternal Love. And this is a famous chapter in the book of 1 Corinthians. And as we walk through 1 Corinthians, we at times can be confused because some of the issues that you encounter in this book are really strange and hard to relate to. Issues like head coverings. My wife had that talk like two weeks ago, and I was like, congratulations, you get one of the most difficult passages in the entire Bible. And so she took that on, and she, uh, she took that on with honor, so I'm proud of her for that. And then um, we've also talked about like eating meat, sacrifice to idols, not something that you struggle with every day. Uh, also, people who are getting drunk at church, that hopefully doesn't happen today, although it might, I guess, at least theoretically speaking. Uh, so there's some strange, you know, the strange topics that are throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. But then we get to 1 Corinthians 13, and it's one that we all know and can relate to. It's one of the most famous passages in the Bible. We almost take it for granted, kind of like John 3.16. And this is known as the, the love chapter. The love chapter. All right, so I bet you're excited to hear about the love chapter, right? Now, uh, the Corinthians, they were priding themselves on what set them apart from one another. We've talked about that in previous weeks. What made them excellent at showing off their spiritual gifts. So they had this standard of excellence, they would say. Like, we want to be excellent at what we do. And so they had this competitive nature as they were going about in the body of Christ. And, <clears throat> excuse me, it's allergy season, I think. Can someone grab that water bottle over there on that table? and bring it to me. That's not someone's random, that's mine actually, and I just forgot to bring it up here, so. But if it was someone's random, I would still drink it, I think, at this point. Yes, I'm sure about that. So uh, we know that they're, um, the Corinthians are dividing over their gifts, and, uh, and so Paul concludes 1 Corinthians 12, 31, with this phrase. He says, and I will show you a still more excellent way, meaning more excellent than the way that you're carrying yourself in your gifting and thinking that that's the way of excellence is to be as good as I can be in my gift set. Paul says, no, 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 there's, you know, there's a more excellent way than that, and it is the way of love. And that's what 1 Corinthians 13 is about. So previously, Paul told them to desire gifts so they can build up the church, but he says, listen, we don't chase after these gifts for the gifts themselves. The point is to use them in love. That's the whole idea. So whenever we, discussed, whenever we discuss spiritual gifts, I've noticed this in the body of Christ, when we discuss the topic of spiritual gifts, Christians often get sidetracked with conversation or questions like, do gifts like speaking in tongues or prophecy or healing, do those gifts still exist? You know, have you ever experienced those kinds of gifts? Or how do you know if you have those gifts? So we, we, we tend to focus on those sensational type gifts primarily and ask questions like, do they still exist today? Um, do you, have you ever met someone that has these certain gifts? And we, we get so caught up in the sensationalism of those uh, gifts. But it's really funny. I've never heard Christians arguing over the importance of love. But Paul says it's the most important thing. And it's the thing that you should prioritize over getting caught up in these kinds of gifts that they're dividing over in that church. So then you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and Paul talks about the absence of love. 
in the first few verses here in 1 Corinthians uh, 13. So what are spiritual gifts like without love? Well, he, just, he talks about that here in the first few verses. He says in verse 1 of chapter 13, he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So I told you last week that we would talk about this idea of speaking in tongues in chapters 13 and 14. And so I'm going to cover a little bit of this. Megan will cover it more extensively next week in chapter 14. So what is this thing of speaking in tongues? Well, we see an example of it over in Acts chapter 2. Don't turn your Bible. I'm just going to summarize Acts 2 very quickly. And after Jesus ascends to be with the Father... The disciples are gathered together, and Jesus is now with the Father, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them in Acts chapter 2, and it's called the day of Pentecost. Now, it says in verses 3 and 4 of Acts chapter 2, it says this, And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So if you're someone that's like a skeptic and you're not yet a Christ follower and you approach the scriptures with skepticism and you're just like, I don't think that really happened. I don't really believe that. I would just say to you this morning that if this is real and I believe that it is, if there is truly a God that loves us and cares for us and came down in the flesh and dwelt among us for 33 years and then died on a cross and resurrected and then ascended to be with the Father— then we should expect to see and hear about some supernatural things. We should expect that if, if he is indeed true in who he says he is, and I believe that he is. So we should expect those things if that is indeed true. And in Acts chapter 2, this episode does not disappoint because this is, Jesus is now ascended to be with the Father, and the Holy Spirit comes down upon these, these, these new believer, these believers, these apostles, and gives them this gift of speaking in tongues. And Megan will talk more about that later on next week. But this does not mean, it says tongues of fire. This does not mean like literal fire, but in the Old Testament, fire is always associated with God's presence. And the word tongues means just languages, like spoken languages in, in that day. So the disciples are suddenly able to speak in different kinds of languages so that others can understand when they've never studied those languages. It's a miracle of God in Acts chapter 2. They could hear them testifying to the mighty works of God on the day of Pentecost. Now, there were two responses in Acts 2 in the audience. Believers had their faith strengthened, but then some unbelievers mocked and ridiculed them and saying they, just, they must be drunk. I mean, they see this, this crazy outbreaking of speaking in tongues with these, these apostles, these disciples, and they say they must be drunk in the morning right? And now the kind of speaking in tongues in Acts 2 is different than what's mentioned in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 through 14. And as you'll see next week, Paul's going to talk about two scenarios. In 14, he will talk about how there, there can be this like private prayer language with God that might be someone speaking in a tongue that, that even they don't understand and that even they don't know. But then there's also the public worship gathering. And in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is clear that if someone speaks in a tongue, a foreign tongue, in the public worship gathering, 
then there needs to be an interpreter and there needs to be order if that were to happen in that gathering. Now, um, I grew up in a church that was fairly conservative and we, we never, at my church and of course here at TBC, we don't practice these kinds of things in the public gathering. That's a whole other conversation. I could, if you have questions about that, I can discuss that with you more extensively. Um, if you want to approach me, we can talk about that after the service today or some other time. But we don't practice that publicly here on the stage or in our church services. And this is partly why, because I've been, when I was a, a teenager in Virginia, I was, went with a friend to a church denomination, a church service, where they had a service. And I knew that this church denomination regularly practiced these things on the stage and in the audience almost every Sunday. And the way I witnessed it at this church was they would do worship at the end of the service, and everyone, including the pastor on the stage, would just start speaking in tongues and uh, from the crowd, but also on the stage. And it was everybody all at one time, and it was kind of a chaotic experience. And I will say that I think if you're going about it, if someone's going to do this and do it biblically, that's not the way that Paul lays out in 1 Corinthians 14 for it to happen. There needs to be an interpreter, and there needs to be order, and he says two to three people can do something like that as long as there's an interpreter uh, that's, that's going to be helping interpret for the audience. Because the point of these gifts is not just for your own self-fulfillment, but so that the body of Christ can be lifted up or can be built up. So that's one way I saw it take place when I was in high school. And I think that was an unbiblical way for it to be, those things to be carried out. And then uh, later on, I went to England to go see a friend of mine and he went to a church that did practice some of these gifts in the service, but I will say that the way I saw it happen in that church service at least was done in a biblical way. There was a person that got up and said a few words, and it was like speaking in a tongue, and then they sat down, one person, then someone else got up and interpreted it. Now listen, I can tend towards skepticism. I don't really know what's legit, what's not legit in those scenarios sometimes, but at least, if, if this was a legitimate experience, this at least was done in a biblical way. So I will at least hand them that. There is a lot more we can say about this conversation that I don't have time to get into this morning. But that's a way that I would say I witnessed it in an unbiblical way, and I witnessed it in a biblical way, if it indeed was a legitimate experience. But here's my take on this whole topic. I don't think any of these gifts have stopped existing. But we got to be careful that we don't get caught up in sensationalism and just believe every single thing that someone says they experience. Because, listen, there's lots of things we can experience or think we experienced that may not necessarily be from God. We've got to be careful and discerning as we encounter these kinds of things. There are whole church movements saying that if you don't speak in tongues, then you don't have the Holy Spirit. That's not true. The Bible doesn't say that. So in these verses, Paul asked them to consider what life would be like without love. You see, the Corinthians were using their gifts not to build up the church, but to build up their egos. And they're seeing it as this competition. Now, when it comes to this idea of speaking in tongues, imagine if you had this sudden ability. Like I've had, I know you guys are in a lot of foreign languages classes in, in school and stuff. Um, I had uh, three years of Spanish in high school, and I had uh, two years of Spanish in college. So I had five years of Spanish, lots of chances to practice. Guess what? I still can't speak Spanish very well at all, right? 
And uh, unless you practice it a lot, you just, it's hard to speak those languages and pick up on the nuance of language. Um, I've been to Mexico. I've been to Spain. I've been to other places where they speak Spanish. But um, I don't speak it very well. It, it takes me five minutes to think of the sentence I want to say. And then I say it to someone, and someone's like, oh, you speak Spanish. And then they just go on this, like, tirade. And I'm like, no, I, you don't understand. That took me five minutes. I have no idea what you're saying right now. All right? Now, imagine if for a moment you had this sudden ability to speak a foreign language, and you'd never studied it before. That might make you a little bit arrogant and cocky, like, you know what, look what I can do, and start showing off your gift. And this is kind of what, what, the, what the Corinthians were doing in that congregation. So Paul is wanting to get them back to the biggest priority, which is the priority of love. That's the most important thing he wants to get across in 1 Corinthians 13. And, he, and his, really his points boil down to this in the first three verses. Without love, we offend others. They were consumed with showing off their gifts. And he says, if you, don't, if you have the gift of tongues, but you don't have love, he says, you're like a clanging symbol. Now, should I? Should I do that? It, it'd be like this. Where is the, uh, the drumsticks? Are they still up here? Or did they go away? Anyway, you get the idea. So this is, I'll use my, this might hurt my finger if I do this, won't it? Oh, there's the drumsticks right here. I found them on top of the bass drum. All right, so... Um, this can be, if this is all you hear all the time, this can be an annoying sound. All right, that's what he says someone sounds like if there's someone who uses their gifts without love, right? How many of you guys want that as like your alarm clock or like your alarm sound on your phone? Probably not. Anybody have that as their alarm on their phone, maybe? Like, you really need help to get up. You're just, I need loudness, right? Uh, so if, if you use your gift without love, it, it can be this, like, this, there's, there's an abruptness, there's an annoyance to that if someone is like that. Now, uh, no offense, if you're in the band and the symbol is your thing, if you're in, in school band, like, raise your hand if the symbol is your thing. All right, you're, yes, there we go. So do you get, like, do you have the, the two symbols together and you get to like do the whole, is that what you do? You get to do that. That's, and you're excited about it. I love that. It's exciting. Because that that's a cool sound. That's a really cool sound as long as it's done in the context of the rest of the band, right? And the orchestra. Now, if, uh, if Bethel just came to your house and you're asleep in your bed and she just came in and she was just like, boom, like right in, as you're sleeping, that would be hard. That would be difficult, right? That would be a tough, tough thing. Um, but listen, we know that with the symbol, there is a time and place for it. We know that no one ever plays the symbol around the campfire, right? It's not a good campfire instrument, is it? It's not like a guitar or something that's more, you know, just melody and it sounds nice to the ears. But it can be a beautiful instrument if it's used properly, again, in a band or an orchestra, but if someone's just banging on a, on a cymbal with no rhyme or reason, it's annoying. And that's what it's like using, to use our gifts without love, Paul says here. So our gifts are meant to be used in harmony with the gifts of others. And Paul says love is what binds all that together. The next point he makes here in the first three verses is this. Without love, we are nothing. Now, before you feel insecure and think that, you know, wait, I'm, I'm nothing? Does that mean God doesn't love me? That's not what this is about. 
He's saying if we had all knowledge and all prophetic powers, but we don't have love, he says we're nothing. This does not mean that God doesn't love us or value us, but it means that God cannot use us for his glory if we don't have love. We've all seen people who are incredibly smart, incredibly intelligent. They know a lot of things, but what they don't know how to do is how to be kind, how to be humble and be gentle. Even if that person is right most of the time in the information they're trying to get across to you, but they don't have love, nobody wants to hear what they have to say, right? That's just human nature. So without love, we are nothing. And then without, thirdly, without love, we gain nothing. The final idea that Paul says in verse 3 of chapter, one, of chapter 13 is the most terrifying to me. He talks about how we can give away all that we have, and if we don't have love, it amounts to nothing. We can, he even says we can give up our lives and not have love. I mean, just think about that. That we can give up our lives. Like, we would, we would say that giving up your life for something or for someone is the mo- most selfless act we can do. That's how we think of dying for something, right? Is, of course, giving up your life is a selfless act. Paul says it's possible to be about self-sacrifice but it still be self-centered. That's a convicting thought. Are there ways in which you and I give up something, or maybe not death, of course, but we give up something, or we give up ourselves or our wants, but we do it to get something. We do it out of self-interest, knowing it will benefit us more in the long run. So self-sacrifice can still be self-centered. Paul says that here. So we always push you guys to serve in the body of Christ. The question I want to ask us as leaders, and also, I guess, you as well, is are we helping you develop a love for Jesus? So how do we know we're using our gifts out of love for God? Here's a question for you. Does the exercise of our gifts point people to Jesus or to ourselves? When we use our gifts, are people drawn to Jesus or are they repelled from Jesus? So Paul talks about the, what, is like, what it's like to use our gifts without, without love, the absence of love. Then the next few verses, he gets into the nature of love in verses 4 through 5. He says, love is patient, and this is the famous part. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Now this section is most often read at what kind of event? Weddings. Everyone knows this as a wedding passage. Or maybe it's framed somewhere in your house and your parents point to it to make you feel guilty for how you're not loving, loving your sibling, right? Now, it's not about romantic love, but this is more about love in the body of Christ. Now, it would still apply, of course, in a marriage, but it's so much more than that. So we throw this word love around in romance and friendship, but this is what it looks like. Paul says this here. There are times that we think we just need to improve. Like for a lot of us, we think if I can just be more patient, be more kind, or stop envying, stop boasting. We think of these things as like a checklist, like I need to stop doing this and start doing this better. And Paul says, no, well, it starts with love. You can't just see these things as like a checklist. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get better at you know, not envying this week or not boasting this week or being patient or more kind. It's not like that. It has to flow from a place, from a heart 
of love. Someone has said that we talked about how the, the body of Christ, we talked about this last week, how there's different uh, parts of the body, the foot and the, the hand and the, and the eyes. And some have said that love is like the circulatory system of the body. It just permeates everything, or it should permeate everything. So why would love be patient and kind? Well, if you recognize that we're all just one body together rather than separate little entities, then you can be patient and kind with one another because we know that with the human body, the the hand is patient with the foot. Like your body works together, and this is the image that Paul wants to put across in 1 Corinthians 12 and also in 13. Now, there are times when we struggle to be patient with other people while expecting everybody to be patient with us. Recently, I came across this idea. It's a big couple of words here, but you can uh, hear the definition on this. It's called the fundamental attribution error. Basically, it's this. We, we think the best of ourselves, but think the worst of everybody else. We give ourselves a break, but don't give anybody else a break. And a guy named Patrick Lencioni defines it this way. The fundamental attribution error. He says, at the heart of this error is the tendency of human beings to attribute the negative and frustrating behaviors of others to their intentions and personalities while attributing our own negative or frustrating behaviors to just environmental factors. So, for example... Like for those of you guys that drive, when you're driving somewhere and there's that crazy person that just speeds past you, what do you think to yourself? You're like, oh my gosh, this person is insane. This person is crazy. What is wrong with them? And then there's a person that you're, you're stuck behind them and they're going super, super slow. And you're like, this person is way too slow. What are they doing? I've got to get somewhere. Get out of my way. Because of course, we always drive at Jesus' speed, Right? the perfect speed. Everyone else is crazy, insane, or they're super, super slow, and they're not going to speed one of them to go. So listen, we all do that, though. We we attribute to someone else, like, this bad motive or something's wrong with them, but me, I'm okay. Like, nothing's wrong with me and how I do things. Another example would be um, if you saw some, like, other teenager or student, you know, yelling at their mom in the grocery store, you might conclude that person's got a major anger problem. They probably need some counseling anger management, but if you're the one that's doing that in a public place, well, it's because, of course, you you had a bad day at school. I mean, work was stressful that day, that week. So we give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, but think the worst about other people. This is the fundamental attribution error, and it's not how love works. Love doesn't work that way. So Paul mentions also envy and boasting here. So what is envy? Well, it's seeing someone above you and desiring to be equal with them or even above them, possibly. Now, boasting is the opposite. It's kind of like seeing yourself already above other people. And when there's love, Paul's saying there's not this hierarchy where you see someone else above you or you're above someone else. He said all that just goes away because when something good happens for one, you can rejoice with those who rejoice. Like whenever you're on a team, or maybe a group project at school. When someone else succeeds and does well, you can rejoice and not be jealous because you see yourself as one on the same team together. Skip down to verses uh, 6 through 7 where it says, 
It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And so on the other side of this idea of love, do you and I rejoice when someone else fails or falls into sin? I will admit something to you that whenever I hear about some public person in ministry out there who has like a ministry failure or they fall spiritually in some way, um, I'm always saddened by it, but there's also a fleshly part of me that thinks, to my, thinks this thought, you know, yeah, that's right. I knew that about them all along. I always knew they were like that. Maybe I'm jealous of their ministry or their success in ministry or whatever, the books they've written, the talks they've done. But there's something in all of us that desires to see people brought down to size. But that's really a sinful attitude for us to have because if something bad happens to someone in the body of Christ, we should mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice because we should see ourselves as part of the same body. That's what Paul is saying here. So if we truly love, then we're saddened when someone else walks through something like that and saddened for the body of Christ and for the reputation of Jesus. So Paul says here how, how love rejoices with the truth. And the Corinthians were being tolerant of sin in that church. And they were thinking that that was loving, to be tolerant of sin. In the church today, I think people don't want to tell the truth to each other. They think that confronting someone is, is an unloving thing to do. But confronting someone with, with the truth is one of the most loving things that you can do. And again, this chapter is not about romance and romantic relationships. I'm sure that, um, that at times, sadly, those few verses have been used to prop up abuse, whether it be in a family or whether it be in the church, where people have used this verse out of context and said things like, you know, well, you're supposed to, you know, bear with all things and, and believe all things. That means that, that does not mean that you put up with abuse and that you remain in an abusive situation. That's not what this is talking about. And I'm sure these verses have been used in, in this sinful kind of way. Now, um, this is really about believing the best about people in the body of Christ, is what it's about. Let's get down to verse 8. This is the endlessness of love. It says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So some believe that this means that gifts like prophecy and tongues will no longer exist once the church came into being. If that were true, then knowledge would cease as well. I don't think we can say that, of course. So when does Paul say that these gifts are going to cease? He says when perfection comes. He says the partial will pass away when perfection comes. Well, this means the partial, imperfect Spiritual gifts are going to disappear when the perfection comes. So what perfection is he talking about? He, he says something strange. He says that when the perfect comes, well, who's perfect? This is easy answer. Who's perfect? Jesus, right? God is. So who's supposed to come in the future? Well, Jesus, of course, should return. So Jesus, who is perfect, hasn't come yet, and therefore these imperfect gifts have not yet disappeared so what does all this have to do with love? Well, look at the first words of the passage. It says, love never ends. So we can say it this way. Love is permanent, and spiritual gifts are temporary. 
So that thing in our world that everyone is obsessed with and consumed with, you know, human love, like the idea of um, if you watch a film, um, for some of you, if, if, if you watch a film and there's not some love story as part of the film, like you're just, I'm, I can't watch it. It's just, you know, it's not meaningful enough. Or if there's a song that's not about that, you, you kind of tune out and you don't really think you can listen to that song. So love is just this all-pervasive thing in our world where people are consumed by it, consumed with it, and we make it only about romance in, in relationships. But what's encouraging here is that this is about us loving God and God loving us and us loving one another in the body of Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ, and that's what this is about. So when, when Jesus shows up and we enter into eternity with him, he says we're going to we're going to see face-to-face, and the perfect will, will show up, and we will love God perfectly and understand God's perfect love for us for eternity. And you see, in the, in the church in Corinth, they thought that their gifts were the main point, and they're investing everything in something temporary. And then Paul says something that seems out of place in verses 11 and 12. He says this. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish, childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So what is he saying? Well, he's illustrating what he said previously. And he says that when the perfect comes, the imperfect will pass away. So the point of spiritual gifts is to bring the church from infancy to adulthood, to mature the church. But the Corinthians are using their gifts in immature ways. So we expect children to be children. We expect adults to be adults. And they are, the, the Corinthians are staying in spiritual infancy. So then Paul uses a second word picture, and it's that of a mirror. And he says, right now we see in a mirror dimly. You see, back then, no one had mirrors like we do today. Isn't that a crazy thought? That, like, no one... You, you didn't have just a mirror in your house or anywhere else for that matter. All you could have was like maybe like a shiny object, maybe something metal that you could kind of see into, and, and uh, you might see like a, a, um, a distorted image of your face or like a cloudy image of your face or someone's face. And it's amazing to think about that because um, if you grew up with n- never having a mirror to look into and see what you look like, you would never really know what you look like. Isn't that a crazy thought? Like you would never, could never see yourself. Maybe you could, like, go to a pond when the water's calm and, like, look in there, but you're seeing yourself upside down, and that's just a strange idea. That's all you can really make of yourself and see what you look like. So Paul says, you can look into a mirror dimly and see a reflection, but it's cloudy. It's, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And he's saying that's what it's like in the here and now in the church with these spiritual gifts. You don't know things fully yet. Perfection hasn't come yet. And so God's given us these gifts so we can still see dimly, but we can't see fully yet until we are face-to-face with Jesus. So right now we cannot see full reality, but one day we're going to see him face-to-face, and when that day comes, we're going to know him as well as he has known us. Then look at verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So again, the Corinthians are focused on things like tongues and prophecy and knowledge. 
like just knowing things, but God wants their focus on faith, hope, and love. And so we exercise the first two. You recognize that faith and hope indicate, like that's what you exercise when things are imperfect, things are incomplete. Faith and hope. We exercise those here in this life while we still see that mirror dimly, but love will last forever. Hear these words by Stephen Ohm. He says, if love is a primary game that humans play, the one people expend all their time, energy, words, thoughts, and actions on, the gospel is a declaration that the game is over. The game has already been won. In Christ, the creator of the game of love stepped onto the playing field and through what looked like the most tragic loss in history, a loss that included his own death, he accomplished the ultimate victory, a victory sealed by his defeat of death in his resurrection. This is how humanity knows that love never ends. It has already beaten death. Love killed death. So it's, it's, this, it's this love, this eternal love. Love like this from God has to be received before it can be shown. Love like this has to be received before it can be shown. So if you're, if you're sitting out here and you, again, you're not yet a Christ follower and you're maybe a skeptic and you're just kind of like checking out Christianity, I know you think of following Christ or becoming a Christian as just following a bunch of rules and just, I don't want to get into, it's just a bunch of rules. It's oppressive. I have no interest in that. Listen, Jesus, God, Jesus is inviting, is inviting you into a love relationship. Like he offers you the thing that you're probably chasing after in this life with other people. He offers that to you. And, and that, that's going to be eternal. And, and it starts now. You've got a chance to step into that relationship with him. And so if, that, if that's something that you're thinking about and you feel convicted about, I would encourage you to ask your leader today or come talk to me after the service. And let's have the conversation, like, how do I step into this relationship with Jesus today? You guys can head to your breakouts. Um, we know that some leaders, I think, are out today. I hope that all the grades are 